Welcome to the podcast, In and Through exists to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. I'm Tim. I'm Marshall. What's up? Not much. I am, just barely. <laughs> this is this is a day off podcast. That's right. That's and right. You know what? That's a good name for a podcast. The day. Welcome to the day off podcast. Mm. Yeah, that could sell. We might actually get sponsors if we called ourselves that. Money. Money, money, money. Get a Patreon going. Get our own headphones so we don't have to run around and rob the sound booth all the time. <laughs> yeah, I just snagged these back from Alex. Yeah, no, we're here with bells on. You just got back from being away. I'm about to go away. So we're trying to cram Squeezing stuff in. them in. Just squeezing them in whenever we can. Yeah, that's right. It's like, where are you headed this morning? I was like, podcast. She's like, yeah. you got to take the kids. Like, all right. Done. I should have had them sit in. Yeah. There's nothing my kids love more than Dort, War, and Confessions. <laughs> I mean, they are technically on every podcast episode. They're yeah, our, they're they our are. intro. You know what I should have... Man, this is a missed opportunity right here. Mm. Although this is all pre-recorded and could be done, we should have had them do it live just to see if they could remember it. <sighs> yeah, that would have been hilarious. It took like 12 takes. Next time. So that intro... <laughs> I made the music for it. Okay. And yeah. then my kids sat there on the living room in, in or in the dining room with a microphone on the table and just kept doing it over and over until they were in sync. Nice. So that's pretty it cool. only took like five times. It's not like yeah. child labor problems. <laughs> <laughs> but five times when we're like that was three years ago. Wow. So Caleb was four. Wow, so that's crazy to think that we've been doing it for this long. Yeah, and we we know what we're doing next year. We do. I don't think we should talk about it yet. But Not yet. Yeah. Teaser. Because, Teaser. Pe- because people are teased. Teaser. We they, know, but you don't. There's the tease. Because, <laughs> pe- because people care enough to feel teased. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, so as we, uh, as we move into our episode today, uh, if you listen to the one that dropped last week, you'll know that we, we kind of got up to the canons of Dort, but uh, just didn't really have the time to dive too deeply into it, which is fine. We're going to pick it up today. Mm-hmm. We're going to get to some through some other things as well. But before we start, the, the timeline has kind of shifted forward a couple decades, so I got some fun facts. Sure. I love doing these. I, don't, I might be the only one who does. If you're a listener and you appreciate this in any way, let me know. Uh, because if I'm the only one who likes this, what if neither one of them like you? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> okay, so in 1620, the Mayflower set sail for Plymouth Colony in New England. Hey, hey, a little Americana history for you, Tim. Um, 1623, the first English dictionary is published. Although dictionary was not spelt the same way mm-hmm. that it's spelt today. It was spelt with an I-E on the end, which I just think is fun. Yeah. That, yeah, I don't know. Um, 1632, the construction of the Taj Mahal begins. Oh. Yeah. Little, little Eastern history. Yeah, I know. I try to mix it up when I can, but it's tough. Uh, 1636, Harvard University is founded. Seems really early. It, okay, so take your your people heading for Plymouth, mm-hmm. and then Harvard. 
Yeah. 16 years later. That's that's a quick turnaround. Yeah. It's like they somebody's, got somebody's kid landed as a third grader. <laughs> <laughs> they graduated high school now. Like, we need a university. <laughs> You're like, we'll build one. Done. We'll uh, call it Harvard. Harvard. Harvard Yard. Hockey con- Okay, sorry, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get into that. Uh sixteen forty two, this is the last thing I have. Blaise Pascal invents a mechanical calculator. Sweet. I was looking at pictures of it. It's pretty neat. It's like a it's like a counter, but it like carries the you know, carries the one or whatever, right? Right. It's got a whole thing, whole contraption. He had like built like fifty prototypes. Took him forever to do it. I and I don't know how complex really it could get. Mm Mm-hmm. But I, I think it was just more the fact that it was a machine that could figure it out. And that was what was cool at that time. AI. Yeah. <laughs> AI. <laughs> <laughs> now we live in the Matrix. So We always did. We always did. Now we just know it. That's right. All right. So let's talk about... Talking Tulip. Yeah. Well, it's essentially the cans of Dort are the counter move right. to the Remonstrance and Arminius' teaching. So... So the Synod of Dort poses itself as a kind of like your your other uh, like Nicaea mm. kind of a thing, right? We're going to gather a bunch of people, and we're going to talk about this, and we're going to decide where people are. Um, but as we said last time, the crowd is overwhelmingly Calvin. Focused, friendly, and Calvin friendly. <laughs> yeah, right. There's, there's not Arminian representation, mm. um, and and basically the canons of Dort are less of a considering both sides. This is what we've concluded, mm-hmm. and more of a here's a list of reasons you're wrong. Right. Oh yeah. No, it's definitely <laughs> that. Yeah. So the 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 it's referred to as the canons of Dort, but the full name was. The decision of the Synod of Dort on the five main points of doctrine in dispute in the Netherlands. So that's what they're doing. That's, that's the title. That is that's very reformed of them. It is to to have a very long yeah. title. And and for those of you that don't do this sort of thing, if you ever read the Puritans, like the Puritans have some really long book titles. Yeah. In most cases, maybe they didn't have introductions originally and so they needed the title to just <laughs> handle that job for them like instead of a little bit on the back cover they just put all that information into the title so you knew exactly what was going to be happening in that book uh, before you even read it so yeah so one of my favorite puritan books is john bunyan's uh grace abounding to the chief of sinners mm. um but that is not the original title. Yeah, that's a shortened one, right? The original title. Um, let me find it here. I'm I'm googling feverishly. <laughs> ah, this is bad radio. My fault. It's all good. Um. Uh, a brief. Uh, a brief relation of the exceeding mercy of God in Christ to his poor servant, John Bunyan. Nice. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So, so these, what we'll just call the canons of Dort, we'll go with the, we'll go with the short 
the short version, or the Synod of Dort that brought about the Canons of Dort, I should say, yep. took place between 1618 and 1619 in Dordrecht. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but whatever. It was, uh, so it was essentially, yeah, a, a national synod gathering mm-hmm. of Reformed churches and church leaders in the Netherlands, but it also included 26 delegates from eight different foreign countries. So there was people from other places in Europe who were interested to see how this was going to go down. Right. Um, and wanted to be a part of that process. So people from England, people from Switzerland, uh, Germany, of course, that sort of thing. So uh, because this division between uh, Arminius's teaching and that of Calvin uh, wasn't restricted to Holland, that's kind of where it came to the front. Um mainly because Arminius was Dutch. Mm-hmm. Um, but these similar conversations were happening around Europe um, at the time. And and the thing to remember, too, is it's essential, essentially like a judicial response. Like right. Think of it as like a court hearing, like making judgments. Like mm-hmm. they're like a, like a Supreme Court of the church mm-hmm. laying down their judgment on this thing that's been brought, this case that's been brought to them. Um, and it's since it's been written, it's been summarized in what we call the five points of Calvinism or which is also in at least in English tulip, the acronym. Mm-hmm. They didn't do that at no. Dort. No, that is a later summarization to come up with the five points. Right. To make to, it memorable. Yeah. To make it memorable and to kind of organize it. And then the tulip thing even much later than that. Uh relatively recently actually i think when i was looking it up online it was like the 60s or something the whole tulip thing came came to be but in any case which is fitting though because holland is full of tulips so that <laughs> sure. i mean it's a thing right? why not why not um so you know props to whoever came keep up with it on that brand one. yeah keep it on brand so we should briefly talk though because these five points are are a good summary like we don't want Listeners, you don't want us to go through the 94 articles that are the canons of Dort. That's just, you don't want that. Are you telling them what they want? I'm Okay, I'm going to assume that most of you don't <laughs> want that. There might be one or two who are like, let's go, buckle up, let's go. Uh, but One or two, that's both of them. Oh, man, yeah, maybe maybe they're divided. We're maybe 50, they're divided. 50-50 split. But why don't we talk about, why don't we talk about the five points briefly? Mm-hmm. Um, the first one is really the least contentious one. Sure. Total depravity. Yep. That's the T and tulip. Essentially that humanity is corrupted. The, all things corrupted. All things. Yeah. All things are corrupted by the fall. Yeah. And so here's here's the thing that is most important about this one. We need to understand the difference between total depravity and absolute depravity. Yeah. Which people would say, well, it's semantic. Right? They those words mean the same thing. Maybe in some instances, but not in this one. Yeah. <laughs> right? Total depravity is about scope. Mm. All things are deprived. Yep. That means everything is broken mm-hmm. from sin, from mm-hmm. the fall. So there's no opportunity for a Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, whatever you want to throw it out there, opportunity to say, well, this part is not broken and is redeemable or still in its perfectly created state. Mm. Right? Uh, absolute depravity would mean you are incapable of doing anything that is ever good. Right. Right. You are only broken, and yeah. there is 
no general grace of God present. Mm. Everything is as broken as it possibly can be, would be utter depravity. But right. that's that's not what's being advocated for here. Um, yeah. And again, probably the least contentious point, most people are, most Christians are going to say, yeah. I'd say just about every worldview would hold to the fact that things aren't what they could be. Right. Which is a lighter way of saying total depravity. Right, right. They yeah. might They might call to nature as being. Yeah. I mean, it flies in the face of the modern the modern motto of like you're the best you that you can be. It's like, <laughs> but interestingly enough, even when someone encourages you in that way, they're still telling you you're not being that you. Yeah, and you need to be that you, which yeah. is a call for change, which yeah. is still saying there's a brokenness. Yeah, in you your need to start recognizing how perfect you are. Right. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> right, which is a self defeating statement. I know exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, love it. Okay, the next one, uh, this is when there's, we start to see the divisions between what we were discussing last week and this week. The, the second one is unconditional election. Mm-hmm. So that is that the basis of God's choice, the basis of God's predestination to save some and not others is not based on any kind of merit or decision or anything on the individual. Now, we talked about how in Arminian um, theology, they're classical Arminian, classical theology. Arminian theology. Yeah, that that they wouldn't be too far from this necessarily. No, I, I think there's points of this that some of them could get on with. Yeah, I think they would not say God choosing those whom would submit to Him. Mm-hmm is based on works. Yeah. I know that that sounds off all kinds of reformed alarm bells. <laughs> um, but I, I think that there is space in classical Arminianism for some of that. Yeah, yeah. But the from the, the more Calvinist perspective, the idea of this unconditional election is that it is, it's not based on anything. There's no distinguishing factor between you and someone who is not saved apart from God choosing you. Right. That is, that's it. Right. So it's, that's, that's that, that. Like Abram. Yeah. Right. Right. Or Israel. Right. We learn that there's just this man and he's been chosen and we we never hear Mm -hmm. why. Yeah. Right. And his righteousness was his obedience, Mm -hmm. not the mean, the reason for him being chosen. Right. God reminds Israel regularly. Mm -hmm. I didn't pick you because you were special. Yeah. You were actually probably the worst. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So it's that it's that principle, I guess, kind of playing itself out. Uh, The third one and probably the probably the stickiest one, I would say, Mm -hmm. um, is the L for limited atonement. Yeah. So this the idea that the atonement of Christ on the cross is limited in its scope. Right. right, that it's an atonement for those who would come to Christ, not for those who would reject Him. Right, and so when people, when you hear people say they're four-point Calvinists, mm. this is the one that gets omitted. Typically, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the idea just being, is it possible? And and, and some of it is is philosophical. 
yeah more than scriptural a lot of this is philosophical yeah right? it, it it's at least on this one mm-hmm. um the idea being if christ died for all but not all will be saved mm-hmm. did did god miss right is a term that i've heard you use that i've heard other people use as well mm-hmm. Can God can God miss or God mm-hmm. fail? God sought to do a thing that didn't come to its fruition mm-hmm. uh, is one perspective that causes them to say limited. And and if you're sitting there like just wringing your hands with Bible verses in mind and stuff he like died that for the whole world, yeah, right. Um, you know that there are a lot of times those passages come with a level of condition on them, like mm. that all who would believe would mm-hmm. be saved. Yeah, and so. Those who won't believe weren't died for it, right? right. Um, so that's the perspective on it. Yeah. Yeah, I like what I see in it is if Jesus atoned for every sin that's ever been committed for every person, what amount of wrath is there yet to be poured out? If he, mm-hmm. if he received all the wrath for everyone, then in, to my mind— then the logical conclusion is universal salvation because it's all been paid for everyone, right? right? So that's why, again, this limited atonement thing rubs people the wrong way, but that's the way that, that's the way, when I was wrestling through this stuff, that's kind of where I kind of came to, like, oh, no, that makes sense to yeah, me. Yeah, so so the idea of if Christ paid for everyone, then we have to be universalist. Mm. Uh, the other side of it is drawing a division between the price paid and the price applied. Right, 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 and that's where the Arminian would say, "Absolute atonement." Right, mm. all sin has been atoned for mm-hmm. and forgiven, mm-hmm. but that forgiveness needs to be accepted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Um, then the I, irresistible grace, which we kind of we spent a good time talking about the difference between prevenient grace and irresistible grace. Um, essentially, essentially the idea is that the grace of God, which saves sinners is essentially irresistible. So if that grace of God through the spirit that is calling some is calling someone to salvation, they will indeed come to salvation, right? It's irresistible. So you're, you can't utterly reject that grace if you are predestined. Right. That's God's grace cannot be turned away. Yeah. That's the idea. Yeah. That's the idea. That particular grace. So there's, we talked about how there's a variety of, gra- I get the rain, right? Right now with how dry it is, <laughs> some, some showers is, is a grace of God, but that particular grace, that grace that calls to salvation, um, that grace of, of bringing about new life is an irresistible one in the Calvinistic system. Right. Uh, and, and I, and then the Arminian, side of that is just to say you know there are pleads to believe mm-hmm. um that seem to be heated or not heated by mm-hmm. those who are called but i would also say um this is where i like playing i like not being in either camp because <laughs> i get to play both sides yeah i i always like to point because because this is where people get really frustrated and, and part of it is mm-hmm. their heart really looks to people that they love Mm. They know and love and they want them to come to Christ and they don't want that decision to have already been made on their behalf because now it's hopeless. That's the feeling they get in that. Mm. Um, but that hand of of God coming in and bringing about 
salvation in a way that's irresistible is something that a lot of Arminians unknowingly pray for. Sure. Right? How do you pray for the lost? Mm -hmm. Do you pray God change their heart? God cause them to see? That's a very reformed prayer. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And the last one is perseverance of the saints. So this is the essentially the assurance that those who are predestined will not fall away. Right. Cannot fall away. Um, so there's plenty of scripture in favor of this. There are a couple passages in Hebrews that seem to talk about individuals who have tasted of the things of God and then have walked away and can't come back. And so mm-hmm. what is that about? And there's a variety of perspectives on that. Um, it's, it's murky waters for sure. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that that's the perseverance of the saints, though. It, interestingly enough, for people who aren't deeply into this Calvinistic Arminian um, debate and are just kind of your run-of-the-mill everyday Christian who doesn't think about these things, you know, the idea of like once saved, always saved is a pretty widely held belief. Right. Even amongst those who wouldn't call themselves Calvinists. I think there are a number of people who would call themselves one-point Calvinists, and this would be it. (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, and this one, this one really comes from Augustine, right? A lot of these teachings, and that's not to say they don't come from Scripture. I, I also understand. The basic idea is if we come to salvation by grace and not by works, mm-hmm. would we not be kept by grace and not by works? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And I, I believe that to be true. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think so too. And I think as far as, I think those passages in Hebrews are talking about people who are participating in the visible church, mm-hmm. but are not part of the invisible church so they're 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 part of the process they're seeing things happening they're they're joining in to some degree but i don't think there's an eraser for the book of life in heaven um Mm -hmm. that's my it's my youth group analogy that i (laughs) that i'm gonna drop on you guys today yeah i think i think (laughs) people are gonna want to jump to revelation where it says Mm. your name will not be blotted Mm -hmm. from that may or may not be a warning that it could be it might just be an assurance that it won't be. Right. Yeah, there's right? different ways to read it. So yeah. so that's <laughs> that's one of the struggles in this, right? Mm. A lot of times people look at this and they're like, the Bible is so clear on this. Mm-hmm. But the Bible is clear on it from your perspective. Mm. You step on the other side of the fence and you read it through a different filter and you're like, wow, that's really clear too, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's why these are third order things, in my opinion, third yeah. order. I yeah. know that some are going to call it second order. Some are going to call it first order. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Those people are definitely wrong. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's okay that I say that because they wouldn't have me anyway. No, they would not. Uh, and they're, they're not listening to this. They aren't. <laughs> they aren't either. <laughs> Whether it's second order or third order might be a bigger debate. Sure. I, this is third order, in my opinion, mm. uh, because the Bible is not so clear as to be undeniably so. Mm. That's my mm. position on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think one of the things too, when we come to these questions where we say like the Bible is not like black and white clear on an issue, like you can still have hold to a perspective, 
right? Mm-hmm. Like that, like it's not that on every issue where we don't have 100% clarity, it's, it's wrong to hold a position, right? Like on that, you know, you and I would both say that in the balance of things, what I see in scripture on the balance of things, I would lean for perseverance of the saints, but I can understand why some people might not based on their interpretation of certain passages and I don't need to condemn them for it. So, mm-hmm. um, Anyways, but these here's the thing we also need to remember about the canons of Dort or the summary of these five points um, of Calvinism or Tulip or whatever you want to call it. It's not it's not a comprehensive coverage of all reform doctrine or no. even Calvinistic doctrine. No. Right. It's not like Calvin was sitting down there writing. I got five things to tell you guys. Only five. Like, no, he wrote about so much more than that. Um it was just this response to the five points of the remonstrance, essentially. Right. And and basically this response, this last one, the P, uh, mm-hmm. is where the Armenians have said, we don't know about perseverance. Mm-hmm. Not sure about that one. Yeah. We're still we're still talking that one over. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Calvinists are like, we're sure about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so the canons of Dort are considered part of the three forms of unity. So a lot of reformed churches, Christian reformed churches or, or different kind of uh, mainly those who trace their, their ancestry back to, to Holland are going to hold to three different documents as their doctrinal statement. Mm -hmm. So we at Memorial, we kind of have our own, which is mirrored off of the Feb, which is kind of this more, we have our own kind of thing, but but what most Reformed churches are going to have in common is Canons of Dort, Belgic Confession, and the Heidelberg Catechism mm-hmm. are the three things that they're generally going to hold to, sometimes with exceptions, but that is that is uh, that is that. So we can move on from Canons of Dort uh, because around the time that all this was happening, a significant war breaks out, and we have to talk about this war because... One, it lasted for 30 years. And secondly, the whole Catholic versus Protestant issue is really at the center right. of this massive, massive con- conflict. Um, when we go back, we were talking, we've talked a lot about the Holy Roman Empire, which is like just Germany plus extra stuff, mm-hmm. really, if we if, imagine that in your mind anyways. But the reality is that there had been... Um, a bit of a peace treaty, the Peace of Augsburg, which was supposed to set boundary lines for where which regions were Catholic and which regions could be Protestant. And in that case, it was essentially Lutheran because they still hated the Calvinists. You weren't really allowed to be a Calvinist. Yeah, they're, they're basically safe zones. Yeah, yes. And it gets really complicated, though, when we remember that there are over 300 states that made up the Holy Roman Empire. So this is really convoluted, right? This is not Canada with 10 provinces. This isn't even the states with, you know, 50 states. This is 300. And they're all, it's just this like mismatch of of, of allegiances. And the thing was this peace that was agreed upon um, is often disregarded. It's sometimes disregarded by both sides, essentially. Um, and and, And for reasons that sometimes make sense. Like, if you have theological convictions, you're going to want people to hear them and and come to your side. Mm -hmm. So if you're a Protestant crossing into a Catholic region and preaching Protestant doctrine, like, you're doing that 
potentially out of good motives. Sure. But that's not allowed under right. this particular treaty, right? Um, and so then what ends up happening is you get these isolated pockets of violence and and the big gov at the time, the Holy Roman Emperor, doesn't really do a lot about it. So what happens is each uh, individual state starts militarizing and building up their defenses and building up their armies and making lots of cannons and everybody's just ready to like to throw down over it's over protestantism versus catholicism it's also it's it's that and it's more than that yeah they go from cannons to cannons (laughs) <laughs> oh nice hey Ooh. i like I, that i know we haven't yet got to the formation of the baptist mm. but can we just say the baptist separation of church and state makes so much more sense yeah when birthed <laughs> from all of this nonsense yeah yeah right yeah like our churches aren't getting along so maybe we should just kill you yeah that's yeah that's what happens so you have Protestant regions allying together and Catholic regions allying together. And then you have countries from outside the Holy Roman Empire that are hopping in, depending on their allegiances. So you have like Scotland and the Scandinavian countries supporting the Protestants, Spain and Poland supporting the Catholic emperor. So that's just like everybody's just piling in. Why not be free of this? Why not be like, yeah, I'll take a piece of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And this drags on for decades. One weird curveball, though, is that the French, who are staunchly Catholic, end up siding with the Protestants for a while just because they hate the Holy Roman Emperor. So they're like, you know what? We'll side with some dirty Protestants for a bit. We don't care because we just hate him more than you. And so then there's that that just kind of complicates things as well. And just the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of a situation. Yeah. Yeah. It gets and 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 so anyways, it wages on. Ultimately, it ends in 1648 uh, and you get something called the Peace of Westphalia. And this is kind of the beginning of the very beginning of what we understand as like a modern nation state, because Mm -hmm. what's decided at the end here. And this is going to play into church history a little bit because it's it's really going to cause a decline in the power of the Catholic Church. Because now the idea is your primary loyalty is to whatever state you live in. Right? right? Over and above essentially everything else. Now that doesn't mean that the Catholic Church isn't going to have influence. It certainly is. Or, mm-hmm. it, or even that the Lutheran Church or other churches aren't going to have significant influence. It is. But your primary citizenship is not in the church now, or it's starting to move in that direction. It's now with wherever you are, Bohemia or Denmark or wherever. Right. And a lot of these places, like if you go and look at the places that are involved, they're not the nations of Europe entirely that we know today. Yeah. Yeah. Right. There are a bunch of them that become other nations. There's still a lot of shuffling them. Europe still has that. We don't have that in the Americas, mm-hmm. so we don't think about that as much. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is still going on. Sure. Ask Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. Right? Or Yugoslavia. Well, I guess they don't exist anymore, but yeah. Right. <laughs> so so there is that bit of um, fluid. Sure, sure. Fluidity of, of what is and isn't a state mm-hmm. uh, in that time. So you're going to see that this is this is really kind of a divide between the secular and the sacred. Yep. Right? Secular allegiance versus sacred allegiance, um, and and where you live and how you're going to practice is going to become more on the secular, mm-hmm. uh, which in some ways 
I, I I know to hear that you think, oh, well, that could only your allegiance should always be the sacred. Mm. As far as as far as peace among nations, and my opinion of a biblical model, mm-hmm. this is a huge step forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it is. It is in that time. Unfortunately, what eventually is going to happen is that people are going to be as rabidly nationalistic mm-hmm. as they were pietistic and then you get world war one <laughs> so which which only exposes the heart it does yeah because it's this was not about religious conviction no this was about i want to be heard mm-hmm. and i need gain yeah yeah it total depravity yeah <laughs> they were onto something <laughs> right <laughs> so and well, briefly, before we get into our, our, our last kind of big subject, briefly, just let you guys know that, don't worry, England, although they didn't participate much in the Thirty Years' War, uh, they're having their own wars up there in England, civil wars. Uh, when we last left England, we were talking about James I, a Protestant king who had just commissioned the KJV. Mm-hmm. He was succeeded by Charles, who was much more sympathetic to both Roman Catholics and Arminianism, which the Puritans in England hotly rejected. And this caused a number of issues, including political ones. So he decided to dissolve Parliament for 11 years, which was not allowed, (laughs) Um, as known as the 11-year tyranny. And during that, he tried to do some things. He tried to impose kind of the a more old school high church Anglicanism mm-hmm. on Scotland because at this point, the the kingdoms of Scotland and England were unified under the same crown. So he was king of England, Scotland, and Ireland. Um, that backfired. The Scottish, again, I mean, because of course it did. And so the Scottish clergy and nobility form a group called the Covenanters and essentially just took control of Scotland. Mm-hmm. And beat the the English army, uh, but then the English Parliament, who were you know contained a lot of Puritan leaning people, also opposed the king, waged civil war against him, as well, and England's divided between those who are loyal to the king and those who are loyal to the Parliament. Um, they would end up actually trying him and executing him. Charles the first was actually tried in court and executed by his own people. Right. Which is cr- crazy to think. Yeah, there's crazy <laughs> stuff going on in England. <laughs> yeah. And next episode we get to dabble into Oliver Cromwell. Oh man. Love that guy. Yeah, yeah, he's an interesting guy. So maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself cuz I'm spoiling some of that story, but in any case, um in 1646, part the part the English parliament tasked a group of clergymen who would become known as the divines, which is real fancy. Sure. But I guess I'm doing a Master's of Divinity, so maybe it's... The ministers and yeah. divines. And um, they were asked to drop a confession of faith. Part of the reason, so one reason was to so that the Reformation process in England could continue to move forward. Also, they wanted to find some common theological ground with Scotland, right? Because they're both fighting against mm-hmm. the king. So the Scottish are like, look, if you're not, if you're not as reformed as us... We're not your friends, essentially. Right. <laughs> that, so, so they're like, well, maybe we can find something common, common here, and maybe we can we can figure something out. And so, what ends up coming about is something called the Westminster Confession of Faith. Yeah, what a healthy process, right? Like to this point, we see a lot of the church conflict coming from people 
only talking about where they differ, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And and areas where they that they hold in common just sort of seem to be assumed mm-hmm. and not a point of discussion. Uh, we would rather talk about. Maybe we just feel more naturally we need to talk about right. where we differ. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel this in my own spirit. Like I'm not calling people out. Uh, and sitting on my high horse, I I only want to talk about the differences, right. and <laughs> and sometimes I rightly come off as someone who's just looking for something to argue about. <laughs> uh, I I remember having a conversation about um, something that someone said in a sermon or whatever, and and Lindsay told me she goes, Tim, is there anyone you agree with that you would just say? <laughs> You want to know what I think? Go listen to that guy because he and I are on the same page. And I thought about it and I thought, yeah, I don't know who that would be. <laughs> My response was just, you know, there's no fun in that, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, focusing focusing in on where we agree. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, you got to stop and do that. Yeah. You yeah. still, talking about the things you disagree on is healthy. Oh, yeah. And I think we sweep that under the rug too much. Mm-hmm. Because you can birth all kinds of heresy and misguided teaching Mm -hmm. from doing that, from just ignoring that. And we refine and we make ourselves better as we say, hey, I see it this way, you see it that way. One of us or both of us are wrong, Mm -hmm. and let's work on this. Let's refine this. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a healthy thing that needs to continue to happen, and I feel like in some instances, especially at the local church level, doesn't happen enough. Yeah. Uh, when I see people jump from church to church and you see the brand of church that they leave and that they go to, mm-hmm. the theological differences are huge. Yeah. But the reason they went was because their kids have friends there or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's not good spiritual practice, right? So we need to be able to talk about those things more and more, but at the same time, we also need to be able to stop and say, hey, where are you at? on this thing that we hold in common, we still hold that in common. Praise Mm. God. Yeah. Yeah. We're actually total side note, but, uh, that's something that I'm currently working and you, well, you'll be brought in the loop as well. (laughs) I'm letting you know about this all on the air. Um, (laughs) working out something like that for the festival of praise here in Stratford, Stratford confessions of the faith. Well, (laughs) yeah, seriously, not going to be quite as thorough as Westminster, but trying to find Kate, what's the, what's the common, where are the bo- the theological boundaries mm-hmm. and what are the commonalities that we can hold to to say when we get together to do events, this is what we're standing on. This is what we hold in common. Right. So that's, you know, it's going to be an interesting process, but but it'd be nice to, to do that sort of thing. So the Westminster Confession of Faith, there's a lot of things in the Westminster Confession of Faith that are going to be familiar to our listeners, mm-hmm. r- probably regardless of of what you know, what denomination um, of church that they're in. Things like, you know, explicitly talking about the authority and the infallibility of the Bible and using the phrase, you know, in its original languages, like the what was originally written down was perfect. Um, and okay, d- hold on. Oh, sorry. What year are we in? 1646. Okay. What version of the Bible is the most prominent at this time? The King James Bible. And the authority of Scripture is based on... The originals. The original languages. Yeah. Just 
Just for throw- anyone out there who's still hung up on the King yeah. James is the inspired word. Yeah. Above all other <laughs> and all other translations are variants and false. Um, the authors of the Westminster, who were the generation that created the King James, didn't see it that yeah, way. Exactly, and went out of their way to state as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, they said that the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture is the supreme judge of councils, ancient writers, doctrines, and private revelation. So essentially. Scripture is the judge of even what they are doing here, right? Or what was done at Dort, right? That that needs to be, you judge those things by Scripture, which is awesome. That's good. Um, The Westminster definitely uh, holds to a Calvinistic view of predestination um, and and to a, a double predestination, Mm-hmm. So some are preordained to everlasting life, other foreordained to everlasting death. That is mm-hmm. explicitly in uh, in the Westminster Confession. Yeah, and I just want to I just want to pause there because that's going to be people are going to throw pitchforks at that. Yeah, yeah, I get it. If if you think that that's a problem, you know that's this is still a conversation being had. Yep. Um, there is a wrestling with the foreknowledge of God in that right and and that's where that's where i hold to the fact that there has to be something other than linear conclusions going on mm. god is capable of resting outside of the linear process one description i heard of this and i'm not sure that i can be on board with it entirely uh but it's talking about a life as at least life on earth the history of the earth and the future of the earth taking place like a parade Mm. We have these great street level seats mm. where we're watching it pass, mm-hmm. but God is watching the parade from the skyscraper mm-hmm. and has the capacity to see the beginning and the end of it mm-hmm. all at once. Yeah. Um, so and that's h- biblical. That concept of him, him having that perspective is biblical for sure. So for him, things aren't playing out. They are there. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it comes with its own problems uh philosophically logistically and theologically uh so i'm not putting that forth as think of it this way mm. uh but it is it is a concept of seeing how we see time differently right yeah. right and so uh in 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 trying to bring the temperature down on on these conversations which is really essentially what i've been trying to do for two episodes <laughs> yeah uh to just say maybe what we see differently is time right and not necessarily the personality of God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's helpful. Um, so the other thing that the Westminster is going to really articulate in a significant way that's really remained in certain churches uh, without much distinction, some distinction in, in ours and much distinction in others, or complete rejection, is something called covenant theology. Mm-hmm. So covenant theology is theo- theology surrounding the way that God interacts with human beings through covenants, through these special relationships that have stipulations, blessings, curses, that sort of thing. Okay, And we read about various covenants through scripture. In Westminster covenant theology, the first covenant that God makes with human beings is a covenant of works with Adam. 
So in the in this understanding, Adam and his descendants were promised life, fellowship with God, blessing, all those good things, on the condition that they obeyed Him. Right. right. I I just want to place a stamp of emphasis mm. on the covenant was made with Adam. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people hear this and they think, oh yeah, old te- old covenant, new covenant. Covenant of works, covenant of grace, Old Testament, New Testament. It's not as simple as that. No, it, it's <laughs> this is whether you're a Baptist confessionalist mm. or a Reformed confessionalist. Mm-hmm. A covenant with Adam. Yeah, yeah. In the garden before the fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's agreed upon. Yeah, and so Adam failed, and there was the fall, and the fall made it impossible. For human beings to keep the covenant of works. Right. It is impossible. Nobody kept the covenant of works except one. But right. he, but that wasn't wouldn't be till later. <laughs> right. And the covenant of works was not even a do. Mm. It was a don't do. Yeah. Yeah. It was so, a pretty yeah. It was so, pretty minimal actually. <laughs> right. <laughs> like don't do one thing. Right. <laughs> it it wasn't like there was a bar set by God. Right. That was impossible to obtain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was eat that and not that. Yeah. Yeah. Or eat anything but that. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And and keep in mind that Adam does not have a corrupted sin nature at this point. Right? At, like Adam, 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 Adam enjoys a, a degree of moral freedom that human beings do not because our, his will was not bound by sin mm-hmm. until after the fall. Where, for the rest of the human history, ours was. So open to sin, but not bound to sin. Yeah, exactly. Capable, but not but not enslaved, mm-hmm. um, as Paul writes that you know we are. Um, so anyway, so God makes another covenant, the covenant of grace, and so in Westminster um, Covenant theology, the covenant of grace, God offers sinners life and salvation. It comes through Jesus. Old Testament believers and New Testament believers are saved by grace through Jesus, mm-hmm. whether they live before him or after him. So whether they are looking forward mm-hmm. to his atoning sacrifice or whether they are reflecting on yeah. backward, he is the central point. Yes. That's how that works. Yeah, yeah. And so according to this confession, so the covenant of grace, it's administered differently. Mm-hmm. Under the Old Testament and, and the New, okay? So, so up to this point, everything is agreed upon, just because most of our listeners are Baptists. Yeah, yeah. Everything is agreed upon at Baptist confessionalists versus Reformed confessionalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so under the law, the, this covenant, it's administered. There's promises and prophecies and sacrifices and all these things that they would do. Mm-hmm. Um, all these kind of ordinances amongst the Jewish people. And they all, yeah, they all point to Jesus, or the promised Messiah, Um and they, their faith in that was able to, for them to achieve forgiveness for their sins. Um, now, th- then with the new covenant, or with, they wouldn't necessarily even call it new covenant, but in the gospel age, the confession teaches that under the gospel, the covenant of grace is dispensed more fully through the preaching of the Bible, and, 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 uh, and they would even include, the, the Westminster even talks about how the the sacraments so baptism and the lord's supper are an administration of of god's grace as well where where we would diff where we differ 
I guess, um, from a Presbyterian covenant theology is we see the, the, the covenant that Christ brings about, the new covenant, as there's, there's actually more newness to it. Right. Mm-hmm. So so a Presbyterian would consider it to be in Christ, the covenant of grace that was given to like Abraham is renewed. Right. We would say. It's a new thing that the covenants that the covenants that he had with Abraham and the people of Israel were pointing to. Right. And so there's there's a greater degree of distinction in how that plays out in how one is a member of that covenant. Right. Right. So so the rough the rough of it. Mm so that our theologians don't ride us yelling yeah. and screaming I might have caps. already I might have already screwed a couple things up in my explanations so. yep so the idea is when God makes a covenant with Abraham that is the beginning of the new covenant the covenant of grace mm. for the reform Westminster kind of group um we're gonna look at that and we're gonna Many are going to look at that and say, well, the law doesn't sound like grace. It's law, and it mm. opposes grace. But if you read the law, I mean, the law explains where we sin, and what do you do? You burn some wheat with some salt on it, right? Or you you have this ceremony with a goat that runs out into the wilderness. Mm-hmm. There's grace in that. Oh, yeah. Right? These people, these people are performing ceremony that expresses the nature of their guilt and sin. Uh, and that ceremony might have some overhead. Sure. Right? Like you have to buy the goat or the pigeon or whatever. Mm-hmm. But ultimately it's grace. Right. They're not paying themselves for the atonement of the sin. Mm-hmm. Right? The sacrificial system is is a way of exemplifying what God has done for them. It was, In fact, it's, it's written into the law that it wouldn't be a financial burden. Mm. Right. So if a person couldn't afford the appropriate sacrifice, there are cheaper options. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm. Um, So that covenant, the people fail in the covenant. They are exiled. They are returned. Mm -hmm. They are exiled again. Christ comes and continues that covenant, renews that covenant Mm -hmm. in a way that man failed to do multiple times, but it is a continuation, mm-hmm. right? And this has serious implications in where we differ mm. because the way that you marked a person of the covenant was circumcision and baptism then becomes the new mark, the new circumcision, and all that applied to circumcision now applies to baptism and that's why the Westminster defines the church as all who would believe and their children yeah and so this is why they baptize babies yeah because they see it as a covenant that was established in Abraham that had its failings because of the failings of man and that Christ would complete perfectly because only he could mm-hmm. whereas the baptist position we won't really get into baptist confessionalism later mm-hmm. as much so to just insert that here even though it is down the road yeah we'll get there 50 75 mm-hmm. 100 years 
Um, the Baptist position would be the space between the garden and Christ's coming is parenthetical. That means it was between the covenants, mm. and its point was to foretell how that covenant would come. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a shadow of the covenant that would be realized. Mm. And so we see baptism as an entirely different thing. Mm-hmm. We don't baptize our children because we see it only as based on the confession of the one who believes. Right. Right. So for us, there's a sharper division between the Old Testament and the New Testament in the way that it's practiced. Yeah. Because we see the covenant of grace in the Old Testament period as parenthetical, sort of like the introduction, but mm-hmm. not yet the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas the they would view. call it the book. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so there's interestingly a lot of conversation right now about whether or not this division is too sharp hmm. between gospel believing reform groups and Baptist groups. And even last night, I was reading a couple of articles that friends of mine were posting um, about whether or not we should accept baptisms from Presbyterians who Mm. understand Scripture, but understand the theology of covenant differently. Mm -hmm. I don't think I agree with the concept, Mm. Um, but it's interesting that these conversations are continuing. Sure, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a challenging subject and like for some people who who hear that those conversations are happening, some people might immediately jump to, well, yeah, like maybe we shouldn't have this maybe we don't need to be divided. And other people would say, "No, no, 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 there's a very good reason that we 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 are." And there are certain consequences that come out of this division of perspectives, you know? And I don't think all Dutch reformed or Presbyterian people would think this way, but I've had people who are pedo Baptist tell me that I must hate my children because I'm withholding a good and appropriate sign of the covenant from them. Right. And that that God wants to bless them through baptism. And for me to not baptize my babies, I am hating them. Right. Right. That is. And that is not a that's not a fringe view. That's a you'll hear that. Yeah. So it's difficult to find a, a measure of of you know, of common, common ground. And on the other side, a lot of Baptists, you know, will talk about an infant baptism as being pointless, meaningless, without any kind of consequence, very dismissive of something that they hold very dear. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are, there's reason why it would be tricky, I think, to have both types in under one roof. Um, right. And even amongst Pato Baptists, there's a difference in how this is understood. Yes. Whereas some would say, you you bore the mark of baptism. You're a part of the covenant family. You're a believer regardless of what the fruit of your life plays out. Right. Right. They'll say things like, you know, that person is not living for Christ, rejects everything, whatever, but their parents had them baptized, so they're under the covenant but living in rebellion. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a pretty extreme view. Um, whereas others would say this is a mark of the covenant, an act of faith by the church and the family. Um, and from here, that person needs to grow in Christ and claim his faith through the 
confirmation process. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So those are those are even different within their camp. This is where I think some people are going to interject and be like, wow, that sounds a lot like baby dedication. Mm. And a lot of reformed groups like to say, you call it a baby dedication and it's the same thing. It's really not. Like when we do a baby dedication, we're not saying this person is under the covenant grace mm-hmm. of God mm-hmm. and has a special mark on them by which the Holy Spirit will pursue them. Mm-hmm. We're saying the church and the family want to dedicate themselves to raising this child mm-hmm. scripturally so that they will grow to confess mm. Christ and be baptized. Yeah. Right. And there is, n- there is, although ceremonially you, there's no water involved. Although ceremonially you might want to see similarities, the heart of it all is very different. Well, and it's not required. Yep. You might be surprised to know that your associate pastor hasn't dedicated either one of his <laughs> babies. <laughs> because he's afraid of I'm it. not afraid of it. I just I it's not that. It's not that. I'm it's just not here. Um yeah. So yeah, the the other maybe one other distinction we'll talk about or maybe it's not even so much a distinction, but the level of relationship between church and state is going to be somewhat less uh, pronounced mm-hmm. than than in the Baptist interpretations. There is still going to be um, a lot to be said about the authority and influence of the secular ruler or the magistrate as it's often referred to in the Mm -hmm. Westminster that is going to be, um, that might go beyond what a lot of modern evangelicals would consider normal. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, like the Westminster confession of faith is still a very significant document. It is kind of the standard for Presbyterian churches to this day. Uh, interestingly enough, England totally flip-flops like 40 years later and just chucks it, but the Scottish keep it, even mm-hmm. though it was made in England. Right. Um, which is, I just find, kind of an interesting quirk of history. Um, and then obviously through the spread of Presbyterianism, it's it's all over the place. But it's also going to be pretty foundational for the early Baptist movement. Right, 55, 56 years later. They're going to take it. They're going to amend some things, but like 80 to 90% of it is like copy and paste Baptist doctrine. And that's next week? I don't know. 1689? We're getting there. Maybe next week, maybe two weeks from now. It's only 50 years removed. I know, I know. Like how slowly are we going to move for the Reformation I don't know. era? I don't know. Yeah, that's true. We got to get moving on this. I guess we're, time's a, time's a ticking. We're into August now, so. Anything else you want to throw in about the Westminster? I'm good if you're good. Do you have anything? I'm good. Thanks for listening. This podcast is, uh, you know what? I've lost my sheet. Oh, here it is. You'd think by now I'd know this. Is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church and is produced in cooperation oh, no, with no, the no, Gospel no. Course. A resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario. Come on, I was I was rolling, man. In cooperation with Gospel Coalition of Canada. And is produced by Alex Walker. Talk to you next time. See you later.